This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Tim Gossage on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Thanks to Bower and O'Day over the next hour, we are going to be chatting with a sporting superstar, an NBL legend, a six-time NBL champion, a six-time best defensive player and a man who's fair to say gave it his all when he crossed the line onto the court. He's represented Australia at the Olympics and he's been pretty banged up over the years. He's now carving out a wonderful career in media at both SEN and also at ESPN in the NBL coverage. And he does a whole lot more. Damien Martin, over the next hour, I hope you inspire me because that's the name of the show. <laughs> Please don't get your hopes up for that. <laughs> I'm a little nervous, to be honest, walking in here going, I'm not about to inspire anyone, but it'll be good to have a chat with a mate. Oh, I think it. Uh, I think your, your resume speaks for itself. If If we were to go all the way to the end and we were to put a full stop on your basketball career, give me a line. Give me a line about Damien Martin from your perspective about what you brought to the table throughout your journey. Oh, I've actually never been asked that. I would say it all came as a surprise because self-belief I struggled with at, at times and growing up in country New South Wales, I never thought that basketball would be something that could be used as a passport to see the world and eventually pay the bills. So I never took any of it for granted and at times where I potentially was crossing that line, uh, I was quickly reminded of it because of the injuries I had. Every time I had an injury and spent time on the sidelines, you'd have 24 hours to get your head out of the you-know-what, and then you'd show up going, how lucky am I I get to call this a job? And I don't know how long I get to do it for because these injuries keep adding it up, adding up, so make the most of it while I can. So surprised myself, surprised, I dare say, my family at times, but was lucky enough to retire with pretty much nothing left in the tank. We'll dig a bit deeper on the injuries, but I just want to give our listeners who are listening to this inspiring story and add as you go, mm-hmm. Achilles, heel, broken arm, jaw, more than once I think, yep. knee, teeth, more. Yeah, no, so this one gets no sympathy, but little toe surgery, that ruled me out for 12 weeks. Uh, Two Achilles, so one as a 19-year-old, and then the second one is why I retired. That's from the left. Torn right, which put me in a moon boot and only got out of it right before the London Olympic tryouts. Four calf tears, uh, complete right knee, uh, ACL reconstruction, torn left MCL, uh, uh, four shoulder surgeries, and they were just bone shaves. They were fine, so I just had to shave back the bone because it was bone on bone. Yeah, the broken jaw, all my fingers are busted, broken arm, three broken wrists. So one of the first things I tell kids when it comes to defense is when you take a charge, don't put your hands back and land on your hands. I'm clearly a slow learner. Keep your hands in the air because I broke my wrist three times taking charges. Uh, so, yeah, they're the, they're the ones, but the toughest was those, the Achilles and the knee. Have you ever if – you, if, you, if you go from start to finish – how many games would you have missed because of injury? 
It's so Jesse Wagstaff just played his 450th, so he's the second most ever to play for the Wildcats. And he and I started at the Wildcats at the same time, but I had two years in the NBL prior to that, and I think I finished on about 340. So he's played over 100 more games, even though we both played 13 odd years. So goes to show you that I missed, oh, I would have missed two full seasons as a bare minimum. Uh, actually, no, it'd be quite a mo- lot more than that. I was lucky, though, that a lot of the injuries I had, I was able to play through until the off-season. So whilst I might have missed a game here and there during the regular season, a lot of the time in the off-season was spent in a moon boot or in a sling. It, uh, it is because you played the game the way you played the game. And, and we talk about best defensive player, you know, six times, and now they've you, the award is named in your honour. We'll touch on that in a moment. As a kid growing up in Gloucester, New South Wales, and Gloucester is spelt similar to the Gloucester Park here. Yep. A lot of people, it's not G-L-O-S-T-E-R, it's O-U-C-E-S-T-E-R. Right. Anyone else of any note come from that town? Because I ain't heard of it. Uh, so Robbie Ralph was the name that I grew up. He played front row for the Canterbury Bulldogs in the NRL. And then we had a golfer, and I can't believe I've forgotten her name, but she was an incredible golfer. I want to say that she drove through Gloucester once and we claimed her as her own because she was only there <laughs> such a short period of time. Uh, and that was probably it growing up. So Robbie Ralph, he was actually playing actively in the NRL. And whenever the Bulldogs were playing, even though we're very much Newcastle Knights territory, Robbie Ralph was the exception. He made us all proud. And how much of the family still resides in Gloucester? Yeah, mum and dad are still there. So and We're doing this interview whilst your mum and dad are in Perth. <laughs> You're spot on. So they've come for a visit. But dad, he's from Sydney, mum's from Sydney. And dad graduated from the University of New South Wales with a commerce and law degree. Mum was a nurse at RPA. And then upon graduating, he got offered a job, which was a five-hour drive away back then due to the quality of the roads. Now it's about three and a half hours in a town called Gloucester, which he'd never heard of. Where is it? It's about three and a half hours north and slightly inland from Sydney. So if you've heard of Foster uh, or Taree, they're, they're the closest cities. They're about 50 minutes due east, straight to the coast. And Newcastle, where I played a lot of my junior basketball, it's about an hour and a half south of us. So mum had never heard of the town. Dad hadn't, but he got offered the job. Went up there, did the interview, accepted it, then went back to uh, Sydney, convinced my mum to go for a little country getaway the following weekend. (laughs) Upon entering Gloucester, dad turned to mum and said, oh, by the way, I've accepted a job. We're moving here. And mum, who was adamant she'd be a Sydney girl, she burst into tears. And I think dad, seeing her reaction, thought, "Uh uh-oh, what have I done here? So he promised her. Anne will be here five years, get ahead financially, going up a law practice, open up one in Sydney. Uh, There's not a whole lot to do in Gloucester, so they end up having five kids in six years, uh, and they still call Gloucester home. So they fall in love with it. Where do you sit in the five-kid situation? I'm number four. So Daniel, he's up in Brisbane. He's a mining engineer. Beth is a primary school principal in Sydney. My brother, John, we call him the miracle boy. He's got sent home to die as a one-year-old, and he's had a million medical conditions. But he actually oversees five different schools for high school kids who get expelled. So they don't fit in, you should say, you know, you could say to general population, you know, they've got tough upbringings. You go through what they've had to overcome just to be able to get to school. They want to go to school. It's just that they, you know, sometimes get expelled. And yeah, they struggle, they struggle to conform, so they've got to find yep. a way. So he finds schools and, and places them. Yep, youth off the streets. So he's wow. essentially the principal for five schools across uh, New South Wales and southern Queensland that deals with these kids. And they're the complete opposite. John, because of his medical conditions, could never drink, smoke, do any type of drugs, grew up in a loving family, you know, dad no had a drugs, good job, no, yeah, drugs. no drugs, but I've been in the car and it's really sad to say this, but I've been in the car and he's 
talking a kid off the ledge or don't take that drug or don't do this or I'll come and bail you out from school. He's an absolute golden child. Uh, And then my younger brother, he works uh, in property development over in Sydney. So a bit of everything, but everyone's over east. And as you said, mum and dad have ventured west for a week or so. Sounds very close. It's an incredibly close family. And do they sort of live their sporting dreams vicariously through your exploits or – and? Because I have it out with my – I'm the youngest of five Mm -hmm. and I – Tell everyone I'm the most famous Gossie, right? <laughs> right? I'm the one that's really made a name for itself. But my mum will say all the other four have been incredibly successful without the headlines. S- sounds similar. Yeah, look, John, I just spoke about, he is the golden child. So mum and dad, if they take a lie detector test and they say, no, that we love them all equally, they're lying. <laughs> they are absolutely <laughs> lying. We know it's John. Uh, but then through sport, we all love sport. Growing up in a country town, that's all you did. So you'd finish school and then you'd go play rugby league, soccer, cricket, basketball, water polo, whatever it was. No AFL. Even in this day, it's all two po- two goalposts, not four. But we just love sport. And so we have a backboard uh, at home and ring. And it's still the original one from when we were growing up there in the 80s and 90s. And the ring is completely bent. The wooden backboards, there's chips everywhere. <laughs> they wanted to take it down. And all five kids have told mum and dad, you can never take that thing down. The nostalgia it brings when we visit mum and dad and just the incredible days of playing basketball in the backyard. There's four boys, one girl. And we're, the boys are kidding themselves if we think we're tougher than Beth. She used to scratch, pinch, punch, push. She loved basketball as, as much as any of us. But when I was the one that turned professional... Yeah, I I love seeing them at games and the banter it created. I'm presuming, like most basketball rings that were erected by a family member in predominantly, it's either too high, it's not the legit, it's higher than most, no one can jam it in, it's just not quite the the legal level, or is this sweet? No, and look, you know what, I've I've never really realised why I shot such a poor percentage from the three-point line, but maybe it's because our driveway's on a slope and our ring only got to about nine foot three. So, uh, yeah, no, it's certainly not ten foot. Uh, It sounds like uh, we're going to get one more question about Gloucester. I just want to ask you about, so basketball is it, but I've heard you speak before. What else were you good at in sport? I loved water polo, cricket, but rugby league. If I wasn't playing basketball, it would have been rugby league. And as a 15-year-old, I actually quit playing basketball to pursue rugby league. My teammates, they decided they were sick of the travel that was part of part and parcel of playing basketball, whereas rugby league, the most we would drive was an hour. Basketball, we're driving up to six and a half hours a weekend to play up in Casino, Coffs Harbour, Port Macquarie. And so I was more than happy to give away the round ball and play with a football instead. And if it wasn't for a phone call from Rob Beveridge out of the blue, who I didn't know at that stage, um, I would have pursued rugby league. Yeah, we're Sydney Razorbacks and Sydney Spirit, and then you found your way to Perth. We'll take a break and come back. More with Damien Patrick Martin, born in Gloucester, New South Wales in 1984. This is his inspiring story, thanks to Baron today, because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Tim Gossage on SEN. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. NBL superstar Damien Martin is our guest in our Inspiring Story for this edition. Thanks to Bower and O'Day because the little things are everything. We get you out of Gloucester, New South Wales. How do you get out of Gloucester? What gets you out of Gloucester and what got you into hoops apart from the driveway basketball? <laughs> So it was, I'd quit basketball, I was playing rugby league, and after about nine nine months of no basketball whatsoever, I got a phone call out of the blue from a guy by the name of Rob Beveridge. I'd never heard of him, but he introduced himself as the New South Wales Institute of Sport coach for basketball, and he said, look, I know you haven't played basketball in a long time, 
But if your mum or dad are willing to drive you to Raymond Terrace McDonald's, which is about an hour away from Gloucester, he'd love to sit and discuss the possibility of coming back to the sport. No McDonald's in Gloucester, no brainer, we'll be there. <laughs> and fortunately, dad knocked off work early, picked me up from home. And before you knew it, we're sitting across from Rob Beveridge, who, if anyone knows Bevo, looks like Ronald McDonald. So it was fitting that over a Happy Meal, he convinced me to quit our rugby league. But he, he asked me the simplest of questions and one that I'd never been asked nor even thought of it myself. And he said, if you could do anything in basketball, what would it be? And he looked me directly in the eye when he asked. And for whatever reason, in that moment, I reflected on the Barcelona Olympics, 1992. So I was only eight years of age at that stage. But my eldest brother and I, we were obsessed with anything to do with the Australian Boomers or anything to do with the Dream Team, the USA basketball team. And we taped all of their games on the old VHS and we just replay them over and over and over again. So sitting across from Bevo years later, when he asked me that question, I said, if I could do anything, it'd be an Olympian, not believing at all it was ever a possibility. But instead of judging me, instead of cutting me down, instead of you know saying I'm delusional, he just said, I believe you can do it, but you're going to have to work harder than ever. You're going to have to make more sacrifices than ever. And he laid out a pathway and he said, if you let me help you, I'll give it my all. And then he said, but in order to do that, you're going to have to give away every other sport. And he made me call my rugby league coach on the spot, uh, quit rugby league. And in doing so, he gave me a scholarship to the New South Wales Institute of Sport. And prior to that, you know, when I quit Bass was because of all those astronomical hours we were doing in the car. And typically dad would work from 6am to 5pm, pick me up from home, I'd fold the seats back in the old Toyota Turaga and I'd sleep an hour and a half each way to and from Newcastle, train for the two hours in between while dad drove. And after, like I said, nine months, you know, it was me that turned to them and said, I'm sick of the travel. I'm sick of all this. I'm sick of missing parties. And so that's when I went to rugby league and then didn't play basketball. So then dad- How, I want to take you back to that, that conversation mm. with Bevo. So but where had you created this- ability that Bevo had heard about and knew about. So before I quit, we did win a state championship with Lake Macquarie. And that's when dad, between mum and dad, they'll drive me an hour and a half on Tuesdays and Thursdays to training. And then again for games on a weekend. And so off the back of winning the state championship, and I was lucky enough to represent New South Wales under 16s, I want to say, he'd seen me at the nationals, but didn't know what had happened. And then he finally got wind that I just wasn't playing the sport anymore. And so when I got in the front seat for a change, driving back from McDonald's instead of sleeping in the back seats, dad and I just went back and forth the whole drive back to Gloucester just saying, you know, remember when Bevo said this or he said that, if even 50% of what Bevo says comes to fruition, this is certainly worth it. And so we made a pact with each other. Dad said, mum and I will get you to all your training sessions and all your games again, provided you stop whinging about hours spent in the car, parties you're missing on the weekend, et cetera, et cetera, and you give it your all. Because one thing I took for granted, you don't realize how selfish you are as a 15, 16 year old, but essentially meant dad was working huge hours at the office, then driving a lot. But then it also meant mum was essentially a single mother of four, two, three, four days a week. And my four siblings didn't get to see their dad two, three, four days a week mm. whilst we were away with basketball. And so we did. We made that commitment to each other, quit rugby league, went back to basketball, went back to those astronomical hours in the car, the sacrifices my whole family made. And then through the help of Bevo, he gave me, got me a scholarship to the Australian Institute of Sport where things went to a different level. It did. Australian National Junior Team, you played alongside the Bogey and others in the Under-19 World Championships. You went to the States in college and stuff like that. So was this all just a part of the journey? Were you still eyeing off 
The Olympic Games at that point? The Olympics was the number one goal, but it's not, you know, you hear people, they wake up and on their mirror in the bathroom, it says Olympian. I never had the goals like that. I was driven internally big time. And I didn't realize, I just thought everyone was. But I look back now and if I went to a party, I made sure I ran home. If there was ad breaks during whatever TV show I was watching, I was doing sit-ups or push-ups or squats. If I walked to school, I was with a basketball. And all these little things I thought were normal, and then it turns out it's not. But I never wanted to let anyone down. That was my biggest motivation in life was not wanting to let anyone down. And so I thought doing all these other things would help in some in some way. I didn't realize it was probably an obsession <laughs> at that stage. Uh, but then when I got to the Australian Institute of Sport, I remember day one we're in Canberra, you know, Andrew Bogut, 12 of us were on scholarship, 11 of us had played for our state, some have represented Australia by then. Bogut had been cut by every Victorian state team up until that point. Aaron Bruce, who was the stud out of Victoria in those days, he looked at Bogut and said, were you surprised to get a scholarship? And Bogut's like, nah. And then fast forward a few days, we're doing a goal setting meeting. Simple, simple question, in five years, where will you be? And then the second follow-up question was, uh, how will you achieve it? And one by one, we're saying college basketball in America, which was my goal to be there within five years. Some guys wanted to play here in the NBL, someone to be in Europe. It got to Bogut, and at that stage, there were no Aussies in the NBA. Andrew Gaze had come and gone. Luke, Lee, Luke Longley was retired, etc. And Bogut said, in five years, I'll be in the NBA. And again, we're thinking, this guy just got cut from the Victorian under-18s or whatever it was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and how will you do that? I'm going to go to university in America. And credit to him, he only said that because he was asked the question. He didn't wake up every day saying, I'm better than you, I'm better than you. But when asked the question, he gave an honest opinion. And he went from being our worst player on scholarship to our best within 12 months through hard work, dedication. And imagine being a 17-year-old kid who had had all these adults cut him from teams, all these teammates judge him when he got cut from these teams. And instead of listening to all these voices, he used them to train and play with a chip on his shoulder and motivation. And so then best player after 12 months, makes an Australian team. After 18 months, we go away to Greece for the world under 20s, win a gold medal. Only time Australia's done that at under 20s. And he got named MVP of the tournament. He was so good. It's actually the 20 year anniversary and we're all getting together uh, over in Sydney for a game where he's now an owner of the club. But going back to that meeting, he got offered a multi-million dollar contract in Greece after the tournament. He said, no, 18 months ago, I had a goal of making the NBA. That's still my goal and nothing's going to change. I'm going to go to the University of Utah where I won't get paid a cent. Uh, so he said no to millions of dollars as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old. Went to the University of Utah for zero dollars, but after two years declared for the number one draft and now he's made, what, over $100 million and our greatest ever Australian player. Yeah, absolute bona fide superstar is Andrew Bogut. We don't always see eye to eye on social media, but I do <laughs> admire his story. He's a remarkable story. Damien Martin is our guest. Thanks to Baron O'Day because the little things are everything. So just in a nutshell, where was you, when was the interest? And I know you went to the Razorbacks, Bevo there, got you there and Sydney Spirit and you played for no money because they were all going broke. <laughs> but where, as a boy and you were going through this in the college system, when did the NBL resonate with you and who did you barrack for and who was your heroes in the NBL? I grew up loving the Newcastle Falcons. So they don't exist. They haven't been around for a long, long time. 
The Hunter Pirates came back in briefly. They too folded. So growing up, I loved the three New South Wales teams, Newcastle Falcons, Sydney Kings, Illawarra Hawks. But the Falcons were the team I wanted to grow up and play for. I remember watching, might, might have been their last year in the league, but Pat Reedy was out there. He'd been brought down from the uh, Townsville Crocodiles and I idolised him in Olympian and just getting to see him up close and personal. But you know, Derek Rucker was there. He was the superstar at that time. Uh, Tony Jensen was there. Grant Kruger. Benny Melmoth was the up-and-comer. So the Falcons, oh, anyone that would listen, I would say if I ever play professional basketball, it's going to be with Falcons jersey on. All right. So you ended up at the Razorbacks. What, was that just Bevo saying, all right, this is the next stage of our your 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 unity, your 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 brotherhood. Yeah, I I remember vividly where I was in the moment where Bevo called me. I could have gone back to Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles for a fifth season. I'd ruptured my Achilles tendons. I missed a whole year through injury. Instead, I thought, no, I've graduated and Bevo's called and said, I'm now uh, the head coach for the West Sydney Razorbacks and I'd like you to come back to Australia and play for me. So I forewent my fifth year of eligibility and no brainer, Bevo, I'm coming home. I remember calling my parents saying, I've just signed a contract, uh, my siblings, who a couple were living in Sydney at that stage, saying, I'll be in Sydney in about three months. And yeah, sitting at the table in my dorm room, signing on the dotted line, that's a moment I'll never forget. Well, we're going to talk more about that and then how you found your way over to WA. And also, well, look, you've achieved plenty, but there was a moment that many people still think is the greatest moment in the Damien Martin career. We'll find out what that is after the break. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Baron O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Damien Martin, our guest. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Tim Gossage on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Damien Martin, our guest, and we're getting this inspiring story. And, and many people have sat in this chair, don't think their story is inspiring, but I'm, I'm sure our listeners would completely disagree. So the Sydney Spirit, the demise, they go broke, you're looking for a career. Rob Beveridge goes west, you go west. And you haven't left. <laughs> you can't get rid of me. I honestly thought I'd be moving here for three years and then I'd get back east and play for a team closer to where I grew up. But when you play against the Wildcats, you know of their history. At that stage, it was Challenge Stadium, which was the best atmosphere more than any other team, which it's funny looking back now because only 3,500 people was probably the capacity. Mark Worthington sat in that chair yeah. two weeks ago, two, two episodes ago, said exactly the same thing. That was the That was the stadium... That was fear factor when you came into town. It was incredible. But as someone who grew up on the East Coast, the only thing I remember knowing about Perth was it always seemed to be sunny when I looked at the weather on the news <laughs> and sharks. So they were the two things in my mind. And then when I was playing for West Sydney and we'd play against the, the Wildcats, because I only played them once due to injury. I missed a couple of games in those first years. Um, Challenge Stadium where we played, Novotel where we'd stay, and the airport where we landed, and the drive in between those three locations. So when I signed with the, the Wildcats, I remember coming down the airport, the escalator at the airport, and I've got three cousins from Rockingham, four cousins, sorry, whoops, um, and I hadn't seen them for about 10 to 15 years, but when I signed with the Cats, they said, we'll pick you up from the airport, and we'll give you a tour of Perth. And so coming down the escalator, I see these three big burly boys with tattoos and beards. <laughs> One girl with blonde dreadlocks. And they said, Marto, we're your cousins. Here's your Dockers Guernsey. And so I uh, flung this jersey over my shoulder. No idea who the Dockers were. And off we went on this tour of Perth. 
and we drove along Riverside, pointed up to over to the city. That's a CBD. We'll take you through there another day. Pointed <laughs> up to Kings Park, number one tourist spot in West Australia. It's pretty nice. We'll take you there another day. <laughs> Driving down Stirling now, uh, Cottesloe Beach. It's about two kilometres to the west. Pretty nice. Take you there another day. The one and only place we stopped on this tour of Perth was the Railway Hotel in North Frio because of skimpies and beers that day, uh, cheap beers. So they uh, they took me there and that was my welcome <laughs> to Perth. And what, 15 years later, I'm still here. But I, I did realise the state loved not just the Wildcats but footy. Boy, do they love their Eagles and Dockers. And I don't know a thing about either of these teams. So when I got asked to do my first ever radio interview, I was quite nervous thinking if they asked me about AFL, I don't know anything. So I called my cousin who gave me the Dockers Guernsey. I said, mate, I'm about to do my radio interview. I'm a nervous wreck. If they ask me about footy, who do I say I go for again? He goes, Fremantle Dockers. And he gave me a bit of their history. If I if they ask me about my favourite players, who should I say? And he goes, oh, well, the best players right now are Matthew Pavlich and Aaron Sanderlands. Just say one of those. So I'm in the studio doing my first ever radio interview, Sydney versus Perth, life over east versus now moving to the west. Last question I got asked was, you live in the west now, who's your footy team? And lying through my teeth, I'm like, oh, the Fremantle Dockers. I bleed purple. Who's, who, <laughs> who's your favourite player? Oh, Matthew Sanderlands. You can't go wrong. So. <laughs> you idiot. Absolutely butchered it, and I've never lived it down. But uh, I do love my footy now. And you won a title in your first year. It, everyone says it, but you just don't know what to expect when that final siren sounds and the confetti drops and you embrace your teammates and you know all that hard work has been worth it. But we didn't expect to win it. Our first game was against the Townsville Crocodiles, which was coached by Trevor Gleeson. And we somehow managed, Kevin Lish, if you ever get to look it up on YouTube, hit a three-quarter court on the buzzer and we win by one or two points. And I remember Trev, he told his team, these guys are no good. I can't believe we lost to them. They're horrible, yada, yada, yada. And that year was so tight, it came down to the last uh, round of the season just to determine the top four and also who will be the minor premiers. We won, another team dropped a game, so we finished on top at 14 and 14 or 15 and 13 and as minor premiers, but it was so close. We actually didn't expect to win at all, but when we did, it was yeah, it was an incredible moment. We talked about injuries at the start and some of the injuries. Um, you copped a stray elbow. In fact, you got more than a stray elbow. Your face got rearranged <laughs> several times. New teeth, new jaw. This is one of those moments. And taking the advantage on the boards. That from a team that had led the league in rebounding. Oh. Inadvertent elbow to Damian Martin from Conklin. Yeah. Yeah. Like to see this. Heavy knock to the mouth. Let's hope all the teeth are still where they are meant to be. That might be the end of Damian Martin for tonight. A calf injury to start the season now. A real heavy knock to the head. And Brian Conklin got tangled up with the Perth defender, flailed his arms about. Unfortunately for Martin, he was the recipient of one of those flailing elbows to the mouth. What was the extent of the injury? So when I was on the ground, I coughed up one of my teeth that was caught in my throat. 
and then there was two others that were really loose. So the old trick of put your tooth in milk and uh, off to the doctors we went, but there wasn't actually any pain. And so it was, I mean, I was almost knocked out, so I was kind of dizzy and confused. But then when I got to the, the bench and the physio, Dave Philpott, he said something to me. When I couldn't talk back, I thought, oh, that's weird. So he knew straight away that it was a broken jaw. And then we went into the locker room. And when I opened my mouth and saw that my teeth were doing gang signs, they were all over the place. Like it just did not make sense. Uh, I had to laugh. And, and then I actually got either Philpot, Philpot or Trevor Gleeson to take a photo of my teeth uh, just because it did look so funny. And then we went to the doctor's. They managed to get me on a flight that night, the red eye. So I flew it's back to Perth. It's up in Townsville, did it not? It's up in Townsville, you're correct. And so got on a flight, red eye. We had to stop in Brisbane. And randomly, we went into the business lounge. I hadn't had a shower. They couldn't stop the bleeding. So I'm in this disgusting uniform, holding a bloody towel, smelling, you know, hadn't slept, high on painkillers. And I see Pete Murray, the, the, the singer. And a couple of months before that, I'd been up in Karratha um, with Scotty Cummings, your mate uh, on the Brecky show, one of my good friends, uh, Lisa Jones, the swimmer. There was a number of athletes up there to open the Karratha Leisureplex. But the musical talent to open it was Pete Murray. While I was up there for the festival, for the opening, I had Liesl Jones, the swimmer, on my shoulder and Pete Murray recognised her, her, had no idea who I was, and made a joke about it. So when I was dazed and confused and high on painkillers in the business lounge in Brisbane, I was like, there's Pete Murray. I'll go and say good day. And I'm like, excuse me, Mr. Murray, as I've got this towel full of blood, it's me, Damien. I had Liesl Jones on my shoulder and I couldn't talk properly. I've got a broken jaw and I'm missing a tooth. Uh, and he just was very polite and said, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> and then just walked away. But yeah, got back to Perth, had surgery, had three root canals. Uh, they've managed to save my original teeth. I've got skin missing from the top of my gum that's now on the bottom of my, my gums. Yeah, it was it was big time, a lot of the surgery and ongoing surgeries I've had since. But how it worked with the scheduling was it happened on a Thursday night up in Townsville and then surgery on Friday, uh, got out of hospital Saturday and we were playing the Townsville Crocodiles back here in Perth, the same team. I wanted to go to the game, but management said, no, you can't because you can't yell. And if you get caught up in the moment and cheer for your teammates, you could undo all the good of the surgery. And so I thought, well, I've got tickets I need to drop off. So my wife drove me to the stadium. I walked into the locker room, dropped off four tickets, told my manager who to put them, uh, leave them for. As I'm walking out of the, <laughs> the players' uh, locker room, through the tunnel, the first person I see is Brian Conklin. The Townsville Crocs have just arrived. And so he's walked in and I've had surgery. So half of my face is numb. I can't control anything. And he's looked at me and said, you're right, mate. And I'm dribbling out one side of my mouth. Like, yeah, I'm all good. I'm all good. Good luck tonight. <laughs> but I didn't realize that he couldn't understand a word I'd said. And he's just looking at slobber coming down the side no of the mouth. No bad blood? No, people say he did it intentionally. I genuinely believe he was trying to get rid of, uh, I think it was Jesse and Greg. And it wouldn't surprise me if he was actually trying to elbow one of those guys because what he was doing, you know, was a lot harsher than what you'd normally do just to try and get players away from the ball. But I think he was hoping to connect on one of those guys. Instead, I came uh, from behind. He couldn't see me and boom, caught one fair in the jaw. So many successful uh, times of your career, but let's go to Rio. The Olympics, the little boy dream is mm. what you wanted to do. And you did this. Around fadeaway jump shot, 10 points for David Anderson. Lead is back to fight. Australia could really go in here. A steal from Martin. Brilliant defending on Durant. You hang your head on that, did you, mate? <laughs> Still on the backdrop of my phone. Did you strip him or block him? Uh, or just 
fumble when he took it out of his hands. Yeah, don't don't look this up because he pretty much turned and gave me the ball. Like <laughs> I like to embellish it, but he pretty much handed the ball over and off we went. So <laughs> it, it was a steal. But I remember subbing in, and I wasn't supposed to have Durant, but got cross matched onto him, and he tried posting me up on the block. And I remember thinking he is so much bigger than I was expecting. He's all off six foot eleven or seven foot seven five wingspan, and so I was just trying to push him as far away from the ring as possible. And then it all happened. It was a blur. We went down the other end. But after that game, because we were winning and we genuinely believed, such was the confidence that Bogut, Mills, Ingalls, Delavadova, Baines had instilled in all of us. We believed we were going to win that game. We're up at half time. We're up with about five minutes to go. Next thing you know, we miss a three. They hit one. Carmelo Anthony hits eight threes for the game, five in the fourth quarter. So by the time we walked off the court, we were devastated. In that locker room, it was probably the most emotional locker room I've ever been in. Delavadova, who's so cool, calm and collected, he was livid. Paddy Mills, who never loses his temper. He was angry. But then Andrew Bogut had been stopped by the Australian media on the way in. And I believe they asked him something along the lines of, oh, Andrew, you must be so proud. You almost beat the Americans. And he came into the locker room and said, if anyone thinks close enough is good enough, then get the you know what out of here. And he was spot on. But normally we'd have a few minutes after an initial player's address to then the coaches would come in. They want the emotion to subside, whether it's a win or a loss. So it was about five minutes that we had to ourselves. And we'd usually just go check our phone, take our shoes off, whatever it might be. I checked my phone and my wife, who was 38 weeks pregnant at that stage back here in Perth, I had about six missed calls from her. I thought, oh, she's gone into labor. So I've grabbed my phone and started walking out of the locker room. Andre Lamanis, the coach, he's walking in to have his player's address or coach's address. He said, where are you going? I said, mate, I've got six missed calls from Brittany. I think she's gone into labor. He said, get out of here, give her a call. So I called her and I said, Britt, is everything okay? Did you make it to the hospital? She said, oh yeah, no, everything's okay. But when you stole the ball off Kevin Durant, I went on Twitter, at Kevin Durant, ha ha, my husband just stole the ball off you. Say the worst attempt at trash talk ever. And she was apologizing because she knew I hated that type of thing. But I was like, it's okay, it's okay, so... Uh, was it uh, one ball before we take a break and come back and wrap it up? Was the Olympic Games everything you expected and more? The best thing the Olympics brought to me was I had the ultimate high and low in my life. Do you have a couple of minutes? And I apologise for couple of minutes. It's your story. I got cut from the London Olympics, but I'd been a part of the Australian team in 2009, 2010 World Cup, 2011, and I toured with them in early 2012. And so when it got to the final camp, I think they had to cut four of us, and I was number three on the list. Guys, at this time tomorrow, we're going to call you. We'll put you on a plane this afternoon. We'll call you at this time. So I was back in Perth, get the phone call, and I get told I'm not on the team. Absolutely devastated. It was the off-season for the Wildcats, so I didn't have that day-to-day routine of waking up, having a purpose, having a reason to be at training, seeing my friends at training. And instead, I just thought I was an absolute failure, loser, no good at the game, questioned my ability, let down my parents, all those sacrifices they'd made, my siblings had made. And I did. I spiraled for about two or three months during the Wildcats off-season after I got cut. And then I remember getting a phone call one day, and it was from my mum, and I was driving along Riverside Drive in the city, and she said, what are you up to? And one, it was amazing I even picked up the call because I'd been ignoring everyone. And then I picked up and I told her I was driving along in the city and she said, oh, can you pull over? I said, no, you're on Bluetooth. It's okay. And she said, no, can you please pull over? And that was the first time she'd ever asked me to pull over. So I knew she was about to tell me something I didn't want to hear in that moment. So I pulled over and I must have been on speakerphone because she told me my dad, person I idolized most in the world, had been diagnosed with cancer. And I was just shattered. I think everything came to the surface. And I just started crying and, and I heard my dad cry for the first time in my life. And then I'd also realized in that moment how selfish I'd been living. At the end of the day, I got cut from a sporting team. Don't get me wrong, it was a team I really wanted to make, but that's what had happened. 
And instead of living with a hand directly in front of my face that said, loser, failure, no good at the game, disappointment, let your friends down, let your teammates down, let your family down, now my hand was at an arm's reach. And so it's still a part of what I saw, but I could see everything else going on in my world that was way more important, in particular, dad's health. How can I be a better son? How can I be a better sibling? And when it comes to basketball, who am I kidding? I love this game. I love the Wildcats. So I changed all my goals when it came to basketball to win as many championships as possible in whatever time I've got left in the game. And then my wife and I jumped on a plane, headed back to Gloucester and spent time with mum and dad. But that's what it took to get me out of you know my funk. So fast forward two more years later, I get cut from the next World Cup team, but I was in a better place. Fast forward another two years and I get told... At this time, 3 p.m. will tell you whether you made the team or not. And I remember pacing up and down the hallway at a hotel in Melbourne. Luke Longley, who's a mate by then, assistant coach of the team, we said, all right, mate, come on in. Didn't make any eye contact with me. And I thought, this is not going well. Open the door. They thought it'd be funny to make me feel like I was about to get cut from the team. I was sinking further and further in my chair. But when they said, congratulations, you're an Olympian, it was the best moment of my life. But then they told me, go out and tell your loved ones. So I called my wife on FaceTime. That then became the best moment of my life. But then I got to call mum and dad. And for the second and only time in my life, I saw my dad cry, this time for different reasons. When I told him I was an Olympian, that was the best thing sport ever brought to me. Nothing on the court, no accolades, no awards, that moment telling mum and dad. So when you talk about the Olympics, I go back to 2012 and then that phone call in 2016. And you talk about inspiring stories and that's what you're providing. Damien Martin, thanks to Baron O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything and we'll be back to wrap it up and what he's doing now. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Tim Gossage on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Six championships we've covered off on the Olympics. Six times best defensive player. I know you, you can't. It's like picking one of your children who's your favourite. What is the best championship out of all of it? Uh, first one was most fun just because we'd never experienced that before. And to be honest, even though we finished as minor premiers, there still wasn't that much expectation on us. Rob Beveridge had recruited us as a three-year plan. So to get it done in year one, Kevin Lish was just brilliant. Sean Redditch was one of the best players in the league. Up and coming Jesse Wagg. So it was just a lot of fun. The year we won with James Ennis felt more like a relief because we'd won everything in the preseason. I think we started the year about 11 and two, uh, finished as minor premiers by a couple of, by multiple games. And so it almost felt like if we don't win, it's been a failure of a season. And so when we won, I remember being on court and it was as much relief as it was jubilation. And then fast forward to the year where Bryce got brought in. I think we were sitting last on the ladder at Christmas. And one of the journalists said, as we'd just won the championship, how does it feel? You know, over December, you were coming last and now you're an NBL champion. And that one was just the ultimate roller coaster of a season. So that's probably the one I'm most pr- proud of because we did stick together. We didn't frail. Yes, we did have to end up firing an import, brought in Bryce, but so many other things happened and had to go our way even in order to qualify the finals for the finals. I think we had to win six in a row just to get there at the end of the regular season. So that one's probably the most meaningful to me because not everything went our way throughout the course of the regular season. Short, sharp questions for you, Damien. Best player you've played with? And I know it's tough because you're going to say so many and you don't want to isolate one best player. With the Boomers, Bogut. With Wildcats, Bryce. Best mate? Jesse and Greg. Best coach? Oh, there's the one I'm actually going to sit on the fence. Bevo's like a dad. So it went from coach, mentor, fatherly figure, and now just a great mate. 
So if you could combine Bevo and Trev, you'd have the perfect coach, and Gorgian's always got an aura around him. Do people understand how and where the Wildcats sit in the sporting landscape of a state like WA? Melbourne United, Sydney Kings, they, yes, they're successful franchises now and building and building and building, and in particular Sydney has been around a lot longer than Melbourne United's had been morphed into a couple of teams out of a couple of teams. But it is a different world being a Wildcat, isn't it? It's spot on. It, it is. They've had so much success over the past. You know, when there was that final streak was alive and well. When it came to an end, people were devastated. They were reaching out to me and saying, I'm 30 years of age and I've never not seen the Wildcats in the finals. And, and then just hearing stories and seeing photos and how much it impacted, you know, kids, adults, loved ones, people in hospital. Like, you just don't realise that the reach that the Are Wildcats have. street parades? Yeah, they, it's street parade. When they got off, they came off the title one year, and Cal Bruton came in, James Crawford. They came in, they went to Forest Place. You couldn't move in the joint. They shut the joint down. It was almost like they're going to have a puppy holiday. Look, I don't know if I'm allowed to reveal this or not, but when I got given the keys to the city or the team got got them, that key doesn't open anything. I've tried, so that is BS. <laughs> but, uh, but you do, you, you get given the keys to the city. You, it's just amazing. The, the Red Army. Every team says how important their home crowd is, and they are. But the Red Army were the sixth man for the Wildcats in every single one of those championship years. People talk about home court advantage. It's not the impact they potentially have on referees. It's the impact they have on individuals because, to be honest, 95% of the noise is white noise. You don't even hear it once you step over that white line. But when they go to another level after a big play, a big shot, a big steal, you hear it and you want to do whatever it takes to replicate that moment over and over and over again. So all of a sudden you feel like you're running faster, you're boxing out, you're getting in a stance, you're playing through fatigue, you're not taking any shortcuts. That's what home court advantage is, and the Red Army do it better than anyone else. Best defensive player in the league is the Damian Martin Best Defensive Player. That's the award they get. Um, where does that sit with you? You you pumped to, to have a, an award named after you? Yeah, I was blown away. So when I announced my retirement, I got in the car, I put my phone on flight mode, Gave my phone to my daughter to play a game. I just did. I just. It's an emotional day. I just yeah. wanted to talk with my wife and drive home. Pretty much, in uh, just her and I going back and forth. When I got home after about a forty-minute drive, got my phone off my daughter, turned flight mode off, mode off, and I got a phone call. And you and I are in real estate, so to be honest, I just thought someone was going to say, "Hey, do you want to? Can I buy this out? Whatever it might have been." Hello, this is Damien Martin speaking. <laughs> and then at the end was the NBL commissioner, and and Jeremy said, "Hey, congratulations on your career." And we started chatting, and he said, "Look, we want to name this award after you." And I was completely blown away. I never thought anything like that would happen. And go back to it's funny when all these things happen I think of mum dad my siblings in Gloucester and when they said they want to do that I just went back to being a kid in Gloucester thinking I can't believe that's just happened how are you now you do everything you've got the role with uh, Paul Hazelby on the run home on SEN you involved at ESPN as an expert and, and sidelines and an expert commentator as you mentioned real estate I think there's player management sports management you do a lot Enough time, and, and you're a dad and a husband. Yeah, I got three girls uh, Maggie's seven, Bonnie's four, and then Poppy's 18 months old. So I love that. And they were great for my career because win or lose, they didn't care. They just ran to you when you opened the door. And my purpose, purpose for playing changed over time to just playing as long as I could because I loved getting them to games. But I love it. I think if I had one job, I'd go crazy on that type of person. I love the challenge of trying to build things. And so being a part of the real estate company when I was only 12 months old, starting a sports management and events, I'm not an agent, but things that I think players should have access to, getting put on a budget. 
you know, learning about mental health, knowing you can lean on someone, life after basketball, after footy, whatever sport it might be. I love that because you're asking these kids to be part of their inner sanctum. And as you know, on social media, it can be brutal and it can really cut you down. And so a cliche that I use with all the kids is never accept criticism from someone you wouldn't go to for advice, but it's easier said than done. So how do you get him in good or great daily behaviors on the court, but also off it? And social media is a part of that. So the sports management, there's a big holistic approach to it where the agent is only a small part of it. So I love sports management and events in particular, proud of what we've done in real estate. And then radio, it's a lot of fun. We talk 70% footy. And as you know, I don't know a thing about the sport. So how I haven't been fired after two years. I'll never know. <laughs> you are Captain Nice Guy. Everyone loves Damien Martin. We love your story. It is inspiring. And we can sit like we do with so many people who have been in this chair over the journey and talk endlessly about so many different elements. But our time is up. I appreciate you sharing your story. And I'm sure everyone agrees that you are one of the nice people of professional sport. And whatever you do, you do it with great love and passion. And uh, we appreciate your time over the last hour. No, and thank you for everything, Goss. Whenever you called to say, can we do something, a smile would be on your face and say, yep, I'm going to do it. Because you put a smile on players' faces, <laughs> even through the tough times. Good on you, mate. Damien Martin providing us with the inspiring sports stories. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day, because the little things are everything.